Shalom, and welcome to Kehilat Rosh Pina, a dynamic, multicultural, and growing Messianic Jewish congregation located in the heart of Oklahoma City and led by Rabbi Michael Weigand. Our goal is to bring you the message of the Word each week from a Jewish perspective and to exalt the Messiah Yeshua as Lord and Savior overall. We are a loving congregation made up of both Jew and Gentile, now one in the Messiah, with Shabbat morning services at 10.40 a.m. and various studies throughout the week. Please come and join us next time you are in Oklahoma City. We would love to have you. And now, we hope you enjoyed today's message. In many ways, this is an unusual and a special Shabbat. I know for uh, some of you, you woke up this morning and you, you had the news or somehow you were notified about what was happening in the land of Israel. As I was just praying, there, there are many right now just happens, and I don't think anything really is happenstance, but it just happens that there are many Messianic Jewish leaders are gathering right now in the land of Israel. They're gathering at a place called Yad Hashmonah, which is outside of Jerusalem. And uh, they're gathering for the, um, a meeting, an organized meeting that's been planned for a long time of the International Messianic Jewish Alliance. Some friends of ours, people that some of you know quite well are there. And as I also played, we prayed, we do have a member of our congregation that's in Jerusalem right now. That's Zelen. Many of you know and love Zelen. She's a longtime member of the congregation who's there studying Hebrew. So I'm saying all that to say this. How many will pray today for Israel and for some of these requests? Let's make sure we do that. It's not a matter of talking about it. It's a matter of doing it. <laughs> it's not a matter of having good intentions to pray. It's a matter of actually praying like we just did and being serious and, how would I say, being directed in prayer and, and yielding to the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, as you make your bakashot, your request known to the Lord. Now, I know we all, each of us, and I ask you to identify yourself by raising, each of us also have personal requests. And I'm convinced that God hears our prayers, that he responds graciously and mercifully to us. How many of you can say that the Lord has answered some of your prayers? I certainly can. And it says in the book of Yaakov, in the book of James, you have not because you ask not. Then it also says you ask and you ask amiss. So we got to make sure that what we ask, if we ask anything according to his will, guess what? He hears us and he responds accordingly. So as you pray, and I hope that we all would pray, if you need some conviction about prayer, read the very first verses of the, of the Besorah, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18, verse 1, where Yeshua told this parable that was meant, it tells us why he told the parable, so that we would keep praying. And what else does Scripture say? It says to pray without ceasing. So prayer then becomes an, an inner attitude that's constantly flowing in us. And I'm hoping to encourage further prayer here in the congregation. This is a special Shabbat in many ways. Uh, we've had a, a, what I would call a glorious <laughs> Sukkot week. And let me ask you, I'm going to ask for more raised hands. How many were able to attend each of the gatherings for Sukkot? These party animals over here. <laughs> 
But we had a great time, and I just want to especially thank each host and hostess that uh, opened their homes to us this time, for the Martins, for Gary and Carmen, and also for Leslie Clymer and, and Donna Bridenstine, and we were also here on Tuesday and last Shabbat. It was a great time. We did get to experience a little bit of rain on Wednesday, and that was fun, and, and speaking with Leslie, we were at her house, and I don't recall that we had ever had rain on Sukkot. We had rain in the morning, but not dirty, but it turned out to be a good time. And I'll also tell you that this group here can cook. <laughs> this group cooks. How's that? <laughs> Sounds better. But uh, this is, we, we're just coming out of the, the week of Sukkot. Sukkot is a, a week-long festivities. And some say eight days. And that's really what I want to speak to you about today is the eighth day. I was thinking over the decades, and I'm, I'm happy and in other ways surprised to be able to say that it's been decades, but I've never spoken on this particular topic before. And I was thinking back, have I ever really addressed this topic? And uh, it just, it, 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 it comes together really well on this Shabbat, because this Shabbat is also a special day. But let's get into the word here. Leviticus, Sefer Vayikra, chapter 23, beginning with verse 33. And I'll explain a little bit of, of what we're trying to present here. But let's start with the word of God. Then the Lord spoke to Moshe, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, The fifteenth day of this seventh month, we know that seventh month is Tishri, or Tishrei as some call it, shall be the Feast of Tabernacles, Chagasukot, for seven days, and then it says, to the Lord. So this is really about the Lord now, to the Lord. Continues in verse 35 of Leviticus chapter 23. On the first day there shall be a holy convocation, Mikra Kodesh. You shall do no customary work on it. In verse 36, for seven days you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. And then it says this, which means on the eighth day, on the eighth day, you shall have a holy convocation. And you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. It is a sacred assembly, and you shall do no customary work on it. Notice that was the eighth day the eighth day. And then it continues, and you're welcome to read all of Leviticus 23. In fact, I would highly recommend knowing Leviticus 23 because there is the Lord's calendar in Leviticus 23. Did you notice I said the Lord's calendar, not Israel's calendar, not your calendar, not my calendar. It's the Lord's calendar. It continues in Leviticus 23, verse 39. Also, on the 15th day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the fruit of the land, Sukkot is a harvest in gathering time, you shall keep the feast of the Lord for seven days. And then it says this, and please notice, on the first day there shall be a Sabbath rest. And then it again talks about Yom Hashmini, the eighth day. On the eighth day shall be a Sabbath rest. So you have seven days of Sukkot, but also an eighth day attached to it. And Scripture affirms, if you were able to attend our community gathering here, we spoke more directly about what happened at the Beit HaMikdash, at the temple, at the Beit HaMikdash in the first century during Sukkot. It was quite a festive occasion. 
And during the Feast of Sukkot are commonly called now booths or tabernacles, all referring to the same thing, Haga Sukkot, the Feast of Sukkot. At, during the first century time, at the temple, when offerings and sacrifices were still being presented to the Lord, we know, because we can count them according to Numbers chapter 29, that 70 major sacrifices of animals were offered during that time. 70. Now, you might say, well, that's a lot. Well, it is a lot. Just one, just the work involved with doing one sacrifice was tremendous. And to do 70 during the week, and, and if you read it, start out, I believe, with 13 and then whittled its way down on the, on the last day. It was a smaller amount. And there were seven days of Sukkot, and then there's this eighth day. And these 70 sacrifices, as we tried to explain uh, during our community gathering uh, last week, these 70 sacrifices were, the, the number 70 really struck rabbinic eyes. As, as the rabbis looked at the number 70, only one thing came to mind for them. 70 was the number they understood to mean the nations of the earth. So, 70 sacrifices to them signified the, the nations of the earth. And these 70 sacrifices were said to be sacrifices that were offered on behalf of the nations of the earth. It's pretty interesting. And when I say nations of the earth, as, as the rabbinic terminology puts it, that means all humanity. So, the sacrifices were done for all humanity. This is what, what the rabbis saw in this. Now, they don't always get everything right, but in this case, they were onto something. Using this passage of Scripture, the passage that talked about the sacrifice of Sukkot, looking at other passages of Scripture in Zechariah and other places, they realized that God really cared about the nations. Did you know that God really cares about all the peoples of the earth? How many of you knew that? He does. He still does. Because his, his love, God's love, his concern, and his care, his tender care for the nation, in a sense, was shown and was even memorialized in the 70 sacrifices that took place at the temple in the first century before the temple was destroyed by the Romans in 70 CE or 70 AD, whichever you prefer, took place, those 70 sacrifices took place during the great feast of Sukkot. Now, Here's the rub, though. After the 70 sacrifices of Sukkot were completed at the temple in the first century, the fall Moadim, a Moed is an appointed time. The fall Moadim, you know, there are spring appointed times and autumn or fall appointed times. The fall appointed times, it would seem after those sacrifices, those 70 sacrifices and the nations are in the, the view of God, it would seem like, well, the, the whole shebang is over with now. But not quite. Not quite. That's my topic for today. Because we want to speak about that eighth day. The eighth day. And we're told in the scripture that on the eighth day, the seven days of Sukkot, and then the eighth day, which was a psalm assembly, so we went from the joy of the Zaman Simchatenu, the time of our rejoicing during Sukkot, where we rejoice and we're glad before the Lord. But then there was this eighth day. And that was a Mikra Kodesh. It was a holy convocation. It was a time of solemn assembly. So we go from the high of rejoicing, and then all the way to the, to the reality, the reality of sobriety, 
the solemnness there. But what was offered as a sacrifice on the eighth day, after the profuse sacrifices of 70 during Sukkot, on that eighth day, which is called Shmini Atzeret, on the eighth day, at that time in the temple, one ram and one bull or one bullock were sacrificed. Go from 70 sacrifices for all the nations, and then there's just this one sacrifice on that day, on that psalm day, that final holy day of the fall feast. It seemed like it was all done with Sukkot. We're completing the year with rejoicing and gladness. But no, God says there's an eighth day, and that's a solemn assembly, and only one sacrifice, one ram and one bull are to be offered. So what was that all about? Why just one ram and one bull? After the great number of sacrifices, then there's one ram and one bull. What a contrast there is. Seventy sacrifices for the nation, and then there's one ram and one bull. In a solemn assembly. Even the Encyclopedia Britannica got it. <laughs> The Encyclopedia Britannica, in talking about Shmini Atzeret, which is the name of that eighth day, says that this one sacrifice, that ram and the bull, one ram, one bull, this sacrifice symbolized Israel's special relationship to God. And there you have the picture. On Sukkot, God loves all the nations, but he has a special love for Israel. Separate from it, special love for Israel. Now, the message of Sukkot and Shemini Atzeret, those seven days and then that eighth day, is simple, yet it's very profound, and we need to really get this. The Lord's steadfast love is great enough to be offered to all the peoples without the casting off or rejection of the Jewish people. Are there people that think that God has rejected Israel? Yes. Are there theologies out there that say God has replaced the Jewish people, replaced Israel? Yes. Quite rampant, easily found. But the message, again, let me repeat it, the message of Sukkot, the seven days of Sukkot, the 70 sacrifice, and then that one sacrifice on Shemini Yatzeret, that one ram and that one bull. Even Cyclopedia Britannica recognizes that shows the special relationship of God to the Jewish people. That last day, the eighth day, that psalm assembly. In other words, we are assured based on numerous Bible passages, and I'm going to share some of them with us this morning. Numerous passages of Scripture were assured that Adonai, the Lord, the God of Israel, the creator of heaven and earth, the God and Father of our Lord Yeshua, the Messiah, has not replaced the Jewish people with the church or anyone else. He's not done that. His love is grand enough for all the nations, including the Jewish people. And how his heart must be breaking right now for what's going on in the land of Israel, for the innocent people, 
there. Now let me share some passage of Scripture with you that kind of um, affirms what I'm saying. And really, there are so many passages of Scripture that I'm going to cut it somewhat short. You're welcome to take this farther in your own study. But notice what Devarim, Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 7 says. Here, Moshe told Israel, Devarim, the, the context of Devarim, Deuteronomy, is the very last time before Moses goes on to be buried by the Lord in a place that's still not known. And Moshe, he told Israel as they were completing their 40 years of desert wanderings, and what a time that was. This is what he says in Devarim, Deuteronomy chapter 7, beginning with verse 7. He said, the Lord did not set his love on you. Notice what it says. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any other people. For you were the least of all peoples. But because, what's it say? The Lord loves you, Israel. Because the Lord loves you, and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Yitzhak, Yaakov, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Verse 9, Deuteronomy chapter 7 Therefore know that the Lord, your God, he is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments. If you were here this morning during the liturgy time, our brother Kevin Gay mentioned this very idea about God's covenant love, not only for Israel, but for all his people. Or how about this passage these words to Jerusalem, the eternal capital of the Jewish people that are found in Isaiah chapter 49, verse 15. What beautiful, tender words these are. Can a woman forget her nursing child and not have compassion on the son of her womb? Surprising response. Surely they may, surely they may forget, yet I will not forget you. Or what about Hosea? Chapter 2, beginning with verse 19 in the English version, by the way, where God speaks to Israel, to the Jewish people, and says, I will betroth you to me. And then he uses this term, le olam. Will you say that with me? Le olam. Let's try that again. Le olam. I will betroth you to me, le olam, forever. Yes, I'll betroth you to me, but sedek uv mishpat, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice, in loving kindness and mercy. I will betroth you to me, in verse 20, in faithfulness. And here's the prophetic picture. And you shall know the Lord. Right now, as we sit here in this Messianic synagogue, there are increasing numbers of Jewish people that have entered into covenant with the living God through the shed blood of Messiah Yeshua, our kapara, our atonement, the atonement for all peoples, including Israel. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Or what about the words of Yermiahu, Jeremiah chapter 31, beginning with verse 35. Does God really love Israel? Listen to this. Thus says the Lord. Thus says the Lord who gives the sun for a light by day, the ordinance of the moon and the stars for light by night, who disturbs the sea and its waves roar. Yes, Adonai Tzavot, the Lord of hosts, is his name. 
verse 36 of Jeremiah 31, if those ordinances, the sun, the moon, the sea, if those ordinances depart from before me, says the Lord, then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if heaven above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, I will also cast off all the seed of Israel for all that they have done, says the Lord. By the way, my last reckoning of how much of the sea has been explored is a little bit under 5% of the ocean has been explored. A little under, it used to be 2%. It's gone up a couple of notches. The ocean floor, we don't even explore that. And will you even think about the universe? How much of the universe do we know? Well, we thought we knew it. There seems to be no end in sight to it. Terms that young people now are learning about planets and about the solar system and about stars, those were terms that weren't even coined yet when I was young. We keep realizing there seems to be no end in sight of this master's great handiwork of the universe. No way to measure it. We, can't, we don't even have the, the mathematical ability to measure it. How do you measure? How many zeros do you put in front of it? Or behind it, how many zeros do you use? How many exponents do you use to try to describe the grandness of the universe? And what does the Lord say? If heaven and above can be measured and the foundation of earth searched out beneath, I'll, I'll cast off the seed of Israel. Basically, the Lord's saying, there's no way. <laughs> can I use the vernacular? No way, Jose. That's not going to happen. But did you notice there it says, he said, I will also cast off all the seed of Israel for all that they have done, says the Lord. It's not like God's oblivious to what people do, what nations do, or what even Israel does. God's aware of what happens in our lives. How many of you believe that God knows what you're doing in your life? He knows exactly your deeds, your actions, your misdeeds, your, uh, your, your things you're commissioned to do and you don't do. He knows exactly. But did you notice how God's unique relationship with the Jewish people is assured? Yet God is well aware of Israel's failings. Be sure God is aware. He's well aware of the sinfulness of all human beings. If there's one word that describes the God of the universe, that's kadosh, holy. Holy is the Lord. And in contrast, we realize that we have all sinned. And when I say all, I mean all. The 70 nations, all the nations in Israel, we have all sinned and fallen short of the very glory that God wants us to walk in, which would be purity and holiness. We fall short. We've sinned. We've sinned in our speech. We sin in our actions. We sin in our commissions that we don't follow. We sin. Our, our, our sins of omission sometimes. Things we should do that we don't do. And as sure as God knows all these things about humanity and human beings and all that he knows about Israel, as sure as that is, yet how merciful is he to you today, to me? How merciful is he? To those who repent and turn away from their sins 
and those who seek his mercy, and he extends his mercy through the shed blood of Yeshua, the Messiah of Israel. His atoning work there. And those who repent and seek his mercy and seek his forgiveness, the Lord extends what? Grace. He extends what? Forgiveness. He extends what? Mercy and newness of life. And many of you have turned your life to the Lord. You have a historical point in your life where you said, He is my Lord. Yeshua is my Lord. His blood avails for me. And if you don't have that historical point in your life, I urge you to make today, Shemini Yatzeret, this eighth day of Sukkot, if you would, to make this the day of your Yeshua the day of your salvation, by receiving him personally as Lord and Savior. This is not about your neighbor, by the way. It's about you and me. Proverbs chapter 28, verse 13, makes this a very significant point. It says this, He who covers his sins will not prosper. Will you say that statement with me? He who covers his sins will not prosper. And I am so thankful. This is one verse I am so thankful for part two. He who covers his sins will not prosper. But say the next part with me, please. But whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. Let's say that again. But whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. Which side of that verse do you want to be on? Actually, which side are you on today? He who covers his sins will not prosper. But whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. And then in the New Covenant, a Brit Chalashah, there's Romans chapter 2, verse 4. And Rav Shaul Paul the Apostle asked this question, this rhetorical question. He says to them, he writes to the Romans, and chapter 2 is really addressed towards the Jewish people. He says, or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to what? To repentance. God's goodness is what the apostle's saying. God's goodness is meant to show us that we need to turn more and more to him not farther and farther from him, but more and more to him. Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? Teshuvah. And we read concerning Messiah in Yohanan, John chapter 1, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now there's a big theological term for that. Sometimes we get caught up in the mumble jumbo of all that. But there's a big theological word for that. The word becoming flesh and dwelling among us. And that's the incarnation. The incarnation. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And then the apostle who wrote this, Yohanan, John, says, and we beheld his glory. This is not something we read in the newspaper. The apostle writes said, we saw this we beheld his glory later on in 1 John. The writer of 1 John says, we fandled him. We touched him. We were there. Not a figment of our imagination or something we read in some book somewhere. We actually were there with him. And we beheld his glory. 
and then he describes it. it says the glory as of the only begotten of the father and i love this next term full of grace and truth do you think your sins are so great that his grace and truth can't overcome that his grace is sufficient for you his grace is sufficient for you And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace. And notice it doesn't say lacking grace for you. It says he's full of grace and truth. And then it continues in verse 16 of Yohanan, John chapter 1, and says, and of his fullness, of his fullness, we have all received Grace upon grace, grace for grace. If you get the picture of that, there's grace and more grace and more. How many of you have see, received in your life an abundance of grace in your life? I have, and I am thankful for that. Can I coin a term here, and I'm being facetious, amazing grace. I'm thankful for amazing grace. It is amazing grace. There's no lack of that. If you'll repent and turn to him with your whole heart, with your whole life, and may Israel do this, and it is happening in Israel. Increasing numbers of Jewish people are turning to recognize that grace and mercy is found where? In Ben Elohim, Yeshua the Messiah. Of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. For the Torah, the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through who? Messiah Yeshua. And Rapshul wrote this in Romans chapter 11, verse 1. He says, I say then, again, another rhetorical question. The number of rhetorical questions in the book of Romans is a big, long list. Check it out. You want to do an interesting study? Just list the questions. <laughs> and then see how many of them you can figure out the answer. That's the other part of it. <laughs> Romans 11, verse 1. I say then, has God cast away his people, the idea is thrown far out there, out of sight, beyond, beyond redemption. I say then, has God cast away his people? And he answers this with two words in English, certainly not. (laughs) Certainly not. He couldn't be more specific than that more the Greek, the Hebrew, etc. of this particular statement is God forbid. No, he certainly not. I say then, has God cast away his people? What is Paul calling? How is he determining the Jewish people in the first century, even after Messiah comes? He's determining them his people, God's people. Certainly not. And then in the same chapter in Romans chapter 11, beginning in verse 11, it says, I say then, Here's another question for you. Have they stumbled that they should fall? The ideas fall completely away, permanently? I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? And how does the answer again? Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Certainly not. And here is a divine plan. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy... Yeshua, salvation has come to the Gentiles, to the nations. Those very nations that the rabbis saw in the first century, those 70 sacrifices was for provision for the nations. But through their fall to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. And then verse 12, now if their fall 
is riches for the world, riches out into the nations. And their failure, riches for the Gentiles. And then he asked this other question. It's really an exclamation. He's saying, how much more their fullness? Truth be told here, this Shabbat morning, this Shemini Yatzeret day, God is powerful enough. God is wise enough. God is benevolent enough and God is loving enough to extend his grace to all people and to bring about his sovereign purpose for, as it's commonly called, the church and for the Jewish people. How many things God's big enough and wise enough and benevolent enough to work with believers and with the Jewish people? I do. He's doing it. (laughs) Uh, If you don't believe that, let me quote a passage of Scripture to you. Nothing is too difficult for the Lord. With God, all things are possible. He who set the universe in its place, the the stars in their place, the planets in their place, and, and the things we don't even see, like the gravity, nothing's too difficult for him. Now, God's great work of redemption for Israel and the nations took place once and for all. There's a one-point historical point. Once and for all, that's when Yeshua, his son, his only begotten son, laid down his life willingly for Israel and the nations. It says in John 1 that he came to his own, his own did not receive him. And someone said, well, that means that the Jewish people rejected him. Absolutely not. Because the very next statement says, he came to his own, his own did not receive him, but those who did receive him to them, he gave the power to be children of God. He sent his son, Yeshua, who came willingly for us. Whether we are from among the nations that Sukkot sacrifices seem to emphasize, or whether we are from the Jewish people, Ashmini Yatzir, that one singular sacrifice of a ram and a bullock, whatever part we come from in this great big wide world, the Lord has provided atonement for every human being through Yeshua the Messiah. For all who repent and turn from their sins and receive of him that grace upon grace that the scripture speaks about. And notice this, one last element here before we conclude about the three great pilgrimage feasts in Devarim Deuteronomy chapter 16 beginning verse 16. I want to leave you with a question here in just a few minutes. In Devarim, Deuteronomy 60, beginning with verse 16, it says, Three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses later on that's identified as Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Three times a year, and those three times are at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, Hagamatzot, Pesach, at the Feast of Weeks, Shavuot, Pentecost. And at the Feast of Tabernacles, Booths, Sukkot. And they shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. Verse 17 of Devarim, Deuteronomy chapter 16 says, Every man shall give as he is able, according to the blessing of the Lord your God, which he has given you. And I want to do a little spin on this idea here this morning. And a question to ask ourselves is this question. What is the greatest thing... You can give to the Lord. What's the greatest thing you can give to the Lord? 
What's the greatest thing we can give to the Lord? As individuals, what's the greatest thing we can give? Well, there's a suggestion again by Rob Shaul, Paul the Apostle in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies, your being, as a living sacrifice, a korban chai. That you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable God, which is your reasonable service. Some translate a reasonable service of worship. And then the second verse, Romans 12, verse 2, and do not be conformed to this world. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Rather than conformed, transformed by the renewing of your mind, your thought process, by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. What has God given to us? Everything. He's given us everything pertaining to life and godliness, as Scripture says. But he's given us everything. Yet, there's even more blessings that await those who will follow Messiah Yeshua. Things that are yet to be even revealed to us. And many of you have experienced in your life blessing upon blessing, even as you receive grace upon grace. Romans chapter 8, verse 32 says, He who did not spare his own son, and again, this is another question, from Romans, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered it up for us all. Are you part of the all here today? Yes. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered it up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? We present to him ourselves. It's the greatest thing we can do. Take all the stops out. And give him your life. Give him everything. Give him it all. We sing that song sometimes. I really like that. Take it all, take it all, take it all, Lord. One of Christopher's friends wrote that. He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? But above all, all humankind has been given Yeshua. How does the scripture say? The most uh, repeated verse in all the Bible purportedly is John chapter 3, verse 16. Will you say it with me? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. All humankind has been given Yeshua. Will we receive him? Will it be more than just a mental gyration? Will this be a real life transaction? Here on Shmini Yatzer, this, this important day, this important day where the, the love of Israel is emphasized, that one sacrifice of a ram and a bull. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 15 seems to express it. Again, Rob showed Paul, the apostles, the writer. I, I love this passage. It's real brief. It's even memorizable for a guy like me. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Now, the reputable site called My Jewish Learning 
go so far as to describe this very day, Shmini Atzer, this eighth day of Sukkot. It describes it like this. Let me read to you, quote, Shmini Atzeret, that's this day right now, is the final day of the long cycle of holidays in the Hebrew month of Tishri. It is often understood as being entirely superfluous. In the medieval period, Simchat Torah developed, which has largely subsumed the original intent of Shmini Atzeret in many communities. People don't even recognize this day. They've replaced it. There's replacement theology right there. Simchat Torah. The next day, the ninth day. But then the article continues in a pretty and quite an amazing statement if you think about it. Quote, Shmini Atzeret might just be the most important of all the Tishrei holidays. And that day, this day in the temple, the first century, that one sacrifice was a sacrifice to express the love of God, his unchanging love for the Jewish people. And even this day, as Israel's going through a terrible time, God's love is there. He's answering, he's responding, blessed be his name. So I think instead of Simchat Torah was tomorrow, we should have Simchat Yeshua. We should rejoice in the Lord because we rejoice in so great a salvation. I want to leave you now with three points. I haven't been giving you many points lately, so I'm going to make up for it today. As we prepare for the Lord's Supper today, you've noticed the elements here. This is serious business, by the way, but not so serious that we can't appreciate it. As we prepare for the Lord's Supper, I want to leave you with three questions. Number one, will you make it your goal to be attentive to the Lord's voice and to obey his spirit during the upcoming days of winter? Do you know now which Shminiat Sarat, the biblical holy days, come to an end until next year, 2024, Passover? Will you make it your goal to be attentive to the Lord's voice and to obey His Spirit? That's, a, that's quite a goal. Number two, will you be faithful to yourself? Will you be faithful to your family? Will you be faithful to your spiritual community? And most importantly, will you be faithful to God in the days ahead? Each of us will be answering that question. And lastly, number three, will you in the days ahead, as many days as the Lord gives us, gives you, will you in the days ahead, will you serve Yeshua and his people? Will you serve him with joy and gladness? Will you serve him with joy and gladness and be ever thankful for his atoning blood? Because that's what those elements are about. His body was broken for us. His blood was shed for us. Or 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21 declares this. For he made him, Yeshua, who knew no sin, to be a sin offering, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Will you please pray with me? Let's prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper. Thank you, Lord, for so great a gift for such an abundance of grace, for love that doesn't fail. We thank you, Lord, for the Jewish people. We thank you for your unchanging love for Am Yisrael. 
pray today, Lord, as we are about to partake of these elements, I pray, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts as individuals that we would recognize as we are in Shemini Atzeret, this eighth day which you ordained according to your calendar and your plan. This psalm assembly, this Mikra Kodesh, this Shabbat, where we focus on you. This time when in ancient days, a singular sacrifice, that sweet-smelling aroma went up to you and reminded you of your great love for the Jewish people. Thank you, Lord, for sending through the Jewish people, sending your son, Yeshua, Jesus the Messiah. Thank you what he has done for us to whosoever will receive him. The power, the authority to become, as it were, your children. Lord, I pray for everyone here today that you would, in your marvelous way, in your unending grace, and your steadfast love that you will continue to mold us as individuals and as a kehila, as a community. Thank you for being the gatekeeper here. Thank you for being the shomer, the one who watches over this community. Thank you for being Adonai Yireh, the one who provides for this community. And thank you for using us for your honor and glory. B'Shem Yeshua. Amen. You've been listening to the Shabbat message from Rosh Pinah Messianic Jewish Congregation in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. We would love to have you visit us. Our weekly services begin at 1040 a.m. each Shabbat, and we are located at 2600 Northwest 55th Place, north of Northwest Expressway at the corner of Northland Avenue and Northwest 55th Place. We meet each Shabbat for wonderful praise and worship with dance, liturgy, teaching, food, fellowship, excellent children's programs, and Bible studies on Tuesday nights. For more information, please visit our website, www.roshpinah.org. That's R-O-S-H-P-I-N-A-H dot O-R-G. You can also reach us by phone at 405-842-1967 or email us at info at roshpinah.org. Thank you for spending time in the Word with us today. Shabbat Shalom and blessings in Messiah Yeshua.